This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with James Woodward who is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh. His new book, Causation with a Human Face, Normative Theory and Descriptive Psychology, is just out from Oxford University Press. How do we reason about causal relationships? How do we determine what the causal relationships in nature are? And how are these two things, causal cognition and causation, connected? In his new book, Jim Woodward synthesizes the normative and the descriptive aspects of reasoning about causation in a way that combines a minimal realism about causal relations with the ways in which creatures like us think about and investigate these relations. While the descriptive, how we do reason, and the normative, how we ought to reason, are distinct, Woodward argues that normativity is built into our theories of causation and that armchair philosophical analysis, experimental philosophy, and cognitive psychology all provide different kinds of information about our causal reasoning and that worldly infrastructure that enables causal interventions based on that reasoning to be successful. Let's turn to the interview. Hi, James Woodward. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Well, thank you very much. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's really exciting to be talking to one of our leading theorists about causation and causal reasoning. Um, before we get to the book itself, Causation with a Human Face, Normative Theory and Descriptive Psychology, uh, I think it'd be interesting to find out a little bit about, about James Woodward, right? Um, how did you become a philosopher, get interested, decide on a career, and how did you come to write this book? Okay. Um, I, I guess I should say that I always think of myself as Jim Woodward rather than James Woodward, unless I'm <laughs> signing a legal document or something. But, uh, so my story, uh, I guess, goes something like this. Um, I was a, a mathematics major uh, as, an un, as an undergraduate at uh, Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. Um, I took um, a bunch of philosophy courses there and uh, found them uh, kind of interesting, although the kind of philosophy that was done there uh, focused very much on uh, process philosophy, uh, Whitehead and, uh, and people like that. And I had very little exposure to analytic philosophy and I, I quite literally did not even know that there was such a thing as philosophy of science. Um, after graduating, um, I went into the Peace Corps for two day, two, two years. I spent uh, uh, a year as a computer programmer. And at some point along the line, I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school. And I was sort of, well, then in, in what area? And, and my problem was I had too many different interests. I had, uh, you know, interests at that point in uh, 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 psychology, uh, history, uh, social science, and many other things. Um, and one, frankly, one of the things that attracted me most about philosophy is that it seemed like a license to stick my nose into uh, 
just about anything. Uh, and so I ended up um, uh, going to graduate school in philosophy at, at the University of Texas. And it was only after I had been there for, I don't know, for about two years or so that I uh, finally um, uh, discovered that there was even such a topic or subject as uh, philosophy of science. I went to Texas thinking that I was interested in uh, Whitehead and stuff like that, because that's what I'd been mainly exposed to in my philosophy uh, classes as, as an undergraduate. So that's kind of how I got um, uh, uh, into philosophy. Uh, and and it, I guess it, part, it reflected an inability <laughs> on my part to make up my mind about exactly what it was I wanted to do. Interesting, interesting. Um, uh, and then, and then, how about the genesis of this book? I mean, you've been working on causation, you know, the interventionist theory, which we'll get into, you know, in a moment. Um, uh, but uh, how did so? How did how did this book come about? Ah, uh, well, so I've I've been interested in the uh, the empirical psychology of causal cognition for. Uh, uh, many, many years, uh, e even prior to writing my first book, uh, Making Things Happen, I was interested in the, uh, uh, the, the psychological uh, aspects of how causal cognition uh, occurs, what are the factors that influence, etc. But my um, interest really uh, was uh, sort of coalesced and uh, uh, I, I really kind of got into the topic um, as a result of a uh, series of workshops that were held at the Stanford Center, the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences. Um, this was, I, I say a little bit about this in the uh, preface, preface, or I guess it's the acknowledgments of uh, uh, my current book, Causation with the Human Face, but the workshops were um, um, sponsored by a grant um, from the McDonald Foundation um, and Alison Gopnik, who's a well-known um, developmental psychologist interested in the development of causal cognition was the principal investigator. And what the workshops did was they brought together uh, philosophers, statisticians, uh, uh, psychologists, uh, some people interested in machine learning having to do with uh, uh, causal reasoning uh, together for a series of meetings and conversations. And um, the, the, the conversations uh, that, that occurred and the ideas that we developed uh, at, in, in those meetings really had a big uh, impact uh, on me. And they're very much reflected in the con contents of the book. So it's really at that point, I think, that I kind of had in the back of my mind that there was a, a, a kind of interesting project here that... Um, you know, might very well be turned into a book. Um, in, in, the, in, in the subsequent years, um, I wrote several papers uh, trying to uh, bring together the uh, empirical uh, uh, side of uh, causal cognition with uh, more normative or philosophical theorizing. But it really wasn't until, I believe it was 2016, um, that um, I was uh, accepted as a fellow at the again, at the Center for Advanced Study of the Behavioral Sciences, that gave me a year off uh, to work. And it was really at this point that I got at least a significant part of the manuscript for the book done. It mm -hmm. sort of very much helped to launch the book. And then the, you know, the, the kind of finishing everything up um, uh, required a, 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 an additional couple of years, but that's the trajectory uh, uh, by which the book was uh, written. Good. Okay. So, I mean, you've, you've, you've mentioned a number of, of, you know, subtopics or that I want to bring up. I mean, the idea of causal cognition or causal reasoning. Um, and then of course the idea of causation and the, the, the title of the book itself is, is somewhat provocative in the sense that it's causation, which is, you know, again, standardly thought of, or at least by a, a, a certain wing of, of analytic philosophy as a, as a you know, purely metaphysical issue, and yet it's causation with a human face. Um, and one of, the, one of the main innovations, I would say, not the only one of the book is, is to 
combine these in an interesting way um, to, to sort of see the relationship or to theorize about the relationship between um, the normative and the descriptive, right? Including, but not just um, the causal cognition stuff that's done in, in cognitive psychology. Um, could you say a bit about um, how you see the relationship then between causal cognition and causation? Sure. Um, so there, I, there are a couple of uh, strands uh, to how I uh, think about this. And frankly, one of the things I was very conscious of in trying to write the book was that um, I was trying to say things I thought that uh, perhaps hadn't been said or hadn't been said in at least quite the way I wanted to say them before. And I, 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 I struggled uh, to make myself clear and I'm not sure that I uh, entirely succeeded, but um, let, let me try uh, to say what I regard as some of the main ideas in the book in connection with the question that you just asked. So of course it's true that we think of, and, and I, completely accept this causal relationships as, so to speak, out there in the world. Uh, you know, whether um, a certain drug uh, cures a certain disease, uh, that's a fact about how the natural world works. Uh, it's not itself something that is, that is determined by uh, how we think or how we reason or anything like that. On the other hand, um, it's important from my point of view to bear in mind that when we, we use a word like causation or causal relationship or whatever, we are uh, operating with a, a set of concepts or ideas that we human beings have invented. Um, so causal relationships as they are in the, in the world, that's a kind of objective matter, but whether we, we human beings operate with a notion of causal relationship and how we conceive of causal relationships, that is um, uh, a fact about uh, us and, uh, and how we think and how we reason and so on. So that by itself, I think, gives one a kind of connection uh, between the empirical psychology uh, end of things and, um, so to speak, causation as it exists in the world. If you think of the latter as what uh, uh, would be involved in a uh, metaphysics of causation. One of the things that I emphasize in the book is that I think that what I call a functional approach to causation is the kind of approach that is likely to be most illuminating. And here the basic idea is that we um, have developed the habit of uh, thinking about the world in, in terms of causal relationships because it's useful uh, for us uh, in various sorts of ways. And one of the ways in which it's particularly uh, useful is uh, the fact that uh, we, we wanna be able to uh, manip manipulate things. We wanna be able to uh, intervene in the world and change things. And causal relationships as I see it are the relationships that we need to know about uh, in order to do that. So partly human concerns that have driven us to uh, develop a notion of causation and develop a, a notion of causation that has the particular form or contours uh, that, it, that it does. Mm -hmm. in, in the abstract, you might imagine um, uh, a creature that just has the notion of correlation uh, between two variables or whatever, mm -hmm. um, and doesn't have any notion of causation at all um, one could certainly, um, it would be, there's nothing, so to speak, wrong with just uh, reporting uh, correlational relations in, in one's environment. But if one does that, um, the thing, of course, about correlational relations is that they don't uh, necessarily uh, support manipulations. Uh, they don't necessarily tell, tell you what will happen if to one variable when you intervene on another that additional kind of knowledge or information is important. And um, that's, according to me, why we have a notion of causation as opposed to simply a notion of correlation. Mm. So that's, that's, I'm not, that's part of my answer anyway, uh, uh, 
uh, to your question. I guess, I guess more generally, what, one of the ideas that I wanted to suggest in the book is that um, notions about what causation is, so to speak, if you want to use that kind of language, it's not my <laughs> favorite way of putting things, and notions about how we find out about causation ought to be intertwined with one another. So the, the epistemology of causation and the metaphysics of causation, again, if you want to talk uh, in, 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 in those terms, uh, they should be connected. Mm -hmm. uh, they shouldn't be pursued as uh, uh, completely distinct topics. Right, and that, that comes through, I think, very clearly. Um in the book. Um, well, one of the things you just, you just talked about was this perspective of, you know, the, the utility or usefulness or the, you know, the, a functional approach. Um, and for a lot of people, again, that's going to be, as I think you, you talk about being dismissed as like mere pragmatics or something, um, which you push back against that. Um, um, at the same time, uh, there was a, a very interesting, amusing comment that you put in the uh, in the introduction, I believe, where one of the reviewers of the book was, you know, seemed to be very upset by your anti-metaphysical stance, as they put it. Um, and in contrast, you you sort of say, well, no, I I I I hold a kind of minimalist metaphysics or a, a minimal realism. Um, so maybe could you could you say a bit of, of, about um, what your minimal realism amounts to? Uh, because it it seemed pretty substantive to me um, in the sense that well sure there's no need for you know laws of nature or anything like that, um, uh, and at the same time there's no godlike perspective on the world that we can take. So we're not entirely you know, we can't get that sort of, I don't know if you want to put it, objectivity. Um, so all of this, it's all very, once you get to what you just said in terms of the idea of we have a per certain perspective on the world, that's, those weren't your terms, but, but we, our theories are going to inevitably be dependent on the way humans or human-like minds, because you include primates, um, for example, the way our minds or creatures with our minds approach the world. Um, uh, so there's no godlike perspective. But on the other hand, um, there is a real, you know, there's real causation out there. And, uh, and what we try to get at is the stuff that's useful to us given our goals. Mm -hmm. So can you, can you kind of elaborate a bit on, cause this is, it's one of the big sticking points or, or main points I think is how you're trying to, you know, get those things together. You know, the normative, uh, you know, the aspects of the, you know, inevitably human and yet the realist part. Okay, um, so first of all, by maybe I should explain a little bit what I mean by normative uh, in this context. So uh, the normative component of uh, one's account of causation or causal reasoning has to do with questions about how one ought to reason. Uh, and I, and I uh, certainly agree that the question of how people or other creatures in fact reason uh, that's an, uh, an issue for empirical psychology, primatology, et cetera. Um, how we, in fact, reason that is uh, distinct from uh, issues about how we ought to reason. Yeah. I see um, uh, what goes on in uh, those portions of statistics and machine learning that are concerned with causal inference, as well as a lot of philosophy as, in effect, normative proposals about how we ought to think about causation or how we um, uh, ought to engage in causal reasoning. So uh, if you think, for example, of David Lewis's uh, counterfactual theory of causation, uh, you can, of course, think of it, and I guess Lewis did, as uh, uh, an account of the metaphysics of causation. Uh, but I take it that it can also, what he says, it can also be interpreted as a normative proposal 
namely that we ought to think about causation and causal relationships uh, in terms of uh, ideas having to do with uh, uh, counterfactual dependence of a particular sort, that that's the uh, sort of the normatively appropriate way uh, to think about causation. And in fact, there are um, in um, statistics and uh, uh, econometrics, um, normative proposals about how one ought to th think about causation uh, that, that, that take exactly that form too, that, that is they connect uh, causation and counterfactuals in something broadly like the way that Lewis attempted to do. But uh, I think the people who engage in, in, in the people in statistics and machine learning who think about causation in this way, they don't think of themselves as doing metaphysics in you know, kind of the sense of traditional analytic philosophy. Uh, the idea is more something like, well, here's uh, a, a good way to think about causation. And it's a good way to think about causation because it gives us uh, information that we have very strong reason to want, namely uh, information about uh, relationships that will support manipulation and control and, and so on. So, so that's the normative. And then the, there's the descriptive. Um, Sort of losing the, the thread of your question here, but I guess part of your question is how how are how do I conceive of these as related to one another? Is that yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I could add, I, you know, I mean, so one of the things is, I mean, you you kind of just got into a bit was um, how our you know you know metaphysical theories is you know again you know Lewis is is a paradigm example I think of somebody who's giving what what is usually classified as a metaphysical theory and how the normative, there's a normative component in these theories. Um, uh, so even if they brand themselves as metaphysical, they are in fact connected intimately to our perspective, our goals, our purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. well, I, I certainly, uh, I certainly do think that, and I, and as I say in the book, of the so the interventionist approach to uh, causation uh, is in fact, in effect, uh, uh, one species of counterfactual theory, where the uh, counterfactuals in question have to do with uh, uh, what would happen to one variable if you perform an intervention on uh, uh, another. Uh, uh, another variable. And so the, there, the connection with um, goals uh, and so on is, I think, pretty transparent. The, uh, if, if the goal is something like finding a relationship, finding relationships that will support manipulation and control, then um, that's basically going to uh, end up being uh, information about uh, uh, interventionist counterfactuals. And hence, um, uh, you've got a connection between the, the counterfactual uh, story about causation and uh, uh, achievement of certain kinds of goals that uh, uh, we have, at least that's how I see the picture. Right, right. Um, so, I mean, uh, you know, speaking of, let me, of goals, I mean, there seems to be this. This was my impression, and 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 let me know that that in effect your um, your bridge to some sort of to what you call minimal realism seems to be in, in some broad sense a success argument. Um, mm -hmm. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, and and I, let me try to say a little bit more about what I understand by minimal realism, and also. Uh, I can at the same time say a little bit more about the success argument and how I think of that as connecting uh, the normative and the um, uh, descriptive. So uh, minimal realism, first of all, uh, does involve the idea that I uh, was uh, alluding to a moment ago that these uh, relationships that uh, support um, uh, intervention and control relationships to the effect that if I uh, intervene on one variable, another variable will change. I think of these as out there in the in the world. They're they're not just uh, uh, things that we uh, 
uh, uh, project onto the world because of the peculiarities of the way our psychology works or something like that. So it's not a kind of Humean uh, 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 projectivist story about the status of these things at all. Uh, but there's a bit more to minimal metaphysics, maybe a lot more to minimal <laughs> metaphysics um, than, than what I just said. And I just sort of gestured at this in the book and I think didn't articulate it very clearly. Um, I'm actually working on a paper uh, at present with uh, uh, Naftali Weinberger and Porter Williams in which we try to make the ideas that I'm just about to describe a little more uh, uh, clear and uh, uh, develop them in a little more detail. But, but the basic thought goes something like this, that, that there are certain structures that are present in the actual world, the world in which we live, that, um, so to speak, support causal thinking. Uh, they're part of the worldly infrastructure uh, that we uh, exploit or make use of when we engage in causal thinking. And this infrastructure includes, for example, principles that connect um, causation and probability. So, for example, the so-called principle of the common cause uh, that says that uh, uh, so, something like that if you uh, if X doesn't cause Y and Y doesn't cause X and they don't have a common cause, then you expect them to be statistically independent. Um, that's a principle that seems to work pretty well in, in guiding causal reasoning in our world. Mm -hmm. Somehow our world is such that at least for a lot of systems, uh, that principle seems to be uh, obeyed, you could perhaps imagine worlds in which uh, that principle is violated, but those aren't our world. And so, uh, as I see it, one task that you might take a kind of metaphysics to have is just uh, articulating these facts about uh, worldly infrastructure, where that, among other things, involves connections between, uh, of an evidential sort, between causation and uh, you know, facts about statistics, facts about what happens uh, under uh, other kinds of changes, et cetera. Um, you can articulate this and there's a sense, I, I don't wanna get into a big discussion about what does or doesn't count as metaphysics, mm -hmm. but these structures, uh, again, are, are out there in the world. Um, they help to explain why our world is a friendly place for causal reasoning, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and so, to that extent, to the extent that they're worldly structures, um, uh, you, it might be appropriate to think of them as uh, having to do with the kind of metaphys metaphysics or maybe the, the, some sort of account of what these worldly structures are like in a, a kind of generic sort of way. Maybe that might legitimately be regarded as metaphysics. It's not the kind of metaphysics that um, people who... Um, uh, have talked about a metaphysics of causation. Of tip, have, it's, it's not the sort of thing that the people who typically talk about metaphysics of causation have in mind. So there's no, there's nothing here about special entities, um, you know, uh, uh, dispositions, uh, uh, relations of necessitation between universals, uh, uh, stuff like that. It's not that kind of metaphysics. But it is a, a kind of uh, uh, account that, that that attempts to describe what it is in the world that we sort of glom onto when we um, uh, uh, engage in causal reasoning. And and there's the the thought here that um, you know maybe possibly some portions of our world and certainly uh, perhaps portions of uh, other worlds that we can imagine just may not be very friendly uh, uh, to causal reasoning. A, a whole lot of the presuppositions that are in place empirically uh, in our world that help to enable reliable causal reasoning might go missing uh, in some circumstances. So it's a kind of contingent fact, as I see it, that uh, causal thinking is applicable to, to the extent that it is, uh, uh, in our world. So the articulation of these worldly structures that support causal reasoning, that, that's part of what I would also subsume under uh, minim minimal metaphysics. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't wanna uh, get involved in a debate about whether 
this really counts as metaphysics or something else. The point is that the uh, project of articulating these worldly structures or worldly underpinnings uh, strikes me as a very interesting one. And I think it's something that's been pretty much uh, underexplored uh, in philosophy and it's something that's worth doing. So that's that's part of what I have in mind by uh, by minimal metaphysics. Mm. Underexplored in what way? Well, I think there's this there's the following uh, tendency. Um, on the one hand, um, people will talk about, of course, the metaphysics of causation, and at least in uh, a lot of cases. Um, this involves uh, what I am tempted to call uh, the postulation of various kinds of special uh, entities or relationships of a metaphysical character uh, mm -hmm. that supposedly uh, undergird um, the, uh, 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 the causal relationships. So you get, you know, uh, talk about causation as the manifestation of powers or causation mm -hmm. as relations involving relations of necessitation between uh, uh, universals, where you get um, the idea, not just that causation has to do with counterfactual dependence, but the right way to understand uh, counterfactual dependence is in terms of possible worlds, and you should be realists about uh, those possible worlds, and so on, mm -hmm. uh, on and so forth. That's not the sort of thing that um, is done or, or, or anticipate uh, doing when you carry out this project of characterizing the worldly infrastructure. It's something completely different. Mm. And that's partly why I say it's underexplored. On the other hand, um, at least as I see it, I don't see this um, project of characterizing the worldly infrastructure as simply of, uh, quote unquote, epistemological significance. It's, it's, it's not mere epistemology because it connects um, how we're how we reason and, and, and tries to explain how it is that we reason successfully uh, about um, uh, causal relationships. And it does so in part by pointing to teachers that are out there in the world that we uh, draw on or make use of when we uh, uh, engage in causal reasoning. So what I see this as is it's a, it's a distinct project that is, it isn't, so to speak, purely epistemological and it isn't Meta, purely metaphysics in uh, the sense of metaphysics that that I just described, where you have you know special entities and you uh, you try to figure out which features of causation are metaphysically necessary and stuff like that. Okay, glad that was that was helpful. Um, well, so so getting to the more epistemological or or you know the the reasoning parts and how we actually investigate and think about cognition, a causal cognition. Um, so you consider, you know, three roughly main air, main ways in which we do that. One has been traditional, you might say armchair philosophy, armchair theorizing, thinking about causation. Um, uh, more recently has been the experimental philosophy or X-Phi people who, um, who are, uh, you know, who, who will uh, probe uh, the causal, into, you know, the causal intuitions or causal judgments of various populations by presenting them with surveys and then seeing how they respond to various, you know, alternative scenarios and so forth. So um, vignettes and so forth. Um, and then you have, of course, the empir empirical the cognitive psychologists, um, you know, you mentioned Alison Gopnik um, as one uh, who are using the standard, you might say the standard tools of, of cognitive psychology to um, not just elicit say verbal responses, but also various sorts of, you know, actions uh, in order to investigate causal, um, causal cognition, um, and not just, uh, as you, as you note, um, not just, of course, in humans, but also in, um, you know, other species as well, particularly our um, closest relatives and among the primates. Mm -hmm. So uh, those three, let's, let, let's look first at the, um, I guess, the armchair <laughs> 
Um, what, what, you know, you see utility in all of these, right? You know, you don't dismiss any of them. Okay. So I do want to, you know, say, state that right at the start. Um, so what's the utility of the armchair in this, um, in this area? Okay. So the, the main utility of the armchair, as, as I see it, I, I go through, uh, several different, uh, uh, possibilities, including that, you know, when you're sitting in the armchair and having your uh, intuitions about uh, what the causal relationships are uh, under various scenarios that you're somehow uh, you, you're engaged in some sort of rationalistic grasp of uh, 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 causal facts, some sort of you know quasi perceptual thing that uh, operates uh, in such a way that uh, uh, you're, you you get in touch with. Uh, a causal reality or something, something like that. And I, and I say that, that, that we don't really have a very good uh, uh, epistemological story that would support that. On the other hand, uh, I think that a very natural way of thinking about the um, what people are doing, at least in the in the causation literature, when they um, uh, have that they describe scenarios and then the, from the armchair they make judgments about. Uh, which causal relationships are present in the scenarios. Uh, a very natural thing to think of them as doing is that they're in effect, although they, although they don't typically put it this way, uh, they're making claims about patterns of judgment uh, that are common um, uh, among uh, uh, at least a substantial range of other, other human beings. Uh, so if, um, you know, I, I describe a scenario in which Billy and Susie throw rocks in a bottle, uh, Susie's, rock, eat, Susie's rock gets there first, uh, makes physical contact with the bottle. Uh, Billy's rock would have uh, done so if Susie's rock hadn't gotten there first. That's the scenario. And then you ask people, uh, or, or you, 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 you consult your intuitions about the scenario and you say that, uh, well, Billy's rock caused the shattering, Susie's rock didn't. Um, I take it what's going on here, the, the, the sort of account that I want to give of what's going on here is that you're um, in, in effect claiming that this, this is in fact um, the way some substantial uh, group of human beings uh, uh, will judge. It's the way you judge as the intuitor. But in addition to that, your intuitions wouldn't be very interesting unless you expect that <laughs> um, be fairly widely uh, shared. And one of the things that I, I claim in the book is that, um, in fact, um, philosophers are not so bad at this uh, activity of trying to uh, 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 anticipate how others will judge at this in, in connection with these scenarios, at least in the case of causation. Uh, they may be not so good uh, in other cases, but in the case of causation, um, uh, they're, they're often really uh, pretty good. Um, so, so this, so, so to the extent that you, part of what you're interested in uh, on the descriptive side of things is, well, just what are the patterns of causal judgment that uh, 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 human beings make? Um, the armchair can tell you um, something interesting about that. Now, Typically, uh, or what you want to do when someone makes an armchair claim is you want to follow up on it um, in some more systematic way, mm -hmm. uh, experimentally or via surveys or something like that, and see whether the armchair uh, claims are really uh, uh, are really correct. So, um, you know, we mentioned earlier uh, David Lewis's um, uh, counterfactual uh, theory of causation. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, as I argue in the book, uh, people do con connect causal claims and counterfactuals in something like the way that uh, Lewis supposes that they do. And this can be shown you know, much more systematically than Lewis did in terms of uh, you know, various kinds of experiments that have been conducted uh, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, people can also, uh, from the armchair, make mistakes. Um, uh, Lewis, for example, claimed that uh, in a case of symmetrical overdetermination, uh, where you have C1 causing E and C2 causing E, and each of these is uh, sufficient on their own uh, for E, um, Lewis claimed that um, just, and he seemed to 
think that this was a kind of descriptive claim about how people would judge. He, he claimed that there was just no consensus about whether uh, in these cases, whether C1 uh, and C2 each individually caused E, whether they somehow caused E together or whether neither one of them caused uh, uh, E, something like that was Lewis's view. Well, um, empirically speaking, that just doesn't seem to be correct. Uh, what most people think is that uh, this is a case in which C1 causes E and a case in which uh, C2 causes E. So um, the empirical, the, the, the judgments that people make and they often assume are gonna be shared by uh, others uh, from the armchair are often, um, at least in the case of causation, as I see it, um, correct or plausible, uh, but typically one needs to, you, sh you shouldn't just take them at face value. You, sh you, you, should, you should follow up on them and see whether they're uh, uh, supported by other sorts of means. So that's the, so that's the armchair story. Um, I don't know whether you have a question about that or whether I should go um, on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, I was going to say the X, it's, that seems to, in a way, include the X5 because um, presumably the reason why you, you know, think that, you know, philosophers are pretty good in, at least in this, you know, in this uh, um, area of causal cognition and, and their own intuitions and the generalizability of those intuitions. Uh, presumably you, you say that because X5 has borne them out, right? Is, is that right? Yeah, X5 and also um, uh, the, the kinds of investigations that are conducted by uh, psychologists. Right. Yeah, so, so there's sometimes um, um, X-Phi is used in a, a sort of debunking role. Uh, the philosopher from the armchair claims that, you know, people make such and such judgments and then the uh, uh, experimental philosopher goes out and uh, uh, does a survey and finds that in fact, uh, people don't systematically make those judgments. Mm -hmm. And um, that may be the right result uh, in connection with some of the judgments that um, philosophers make. But I say, I claim in the case of uh, judgments about causation, um, the um, claims that the judgments are at least somewhat general uh, is, um, you know, it's the sort of thing that is, I, I think, empirically supported in many cases by uh, either survey-based or more uh, uh, experimental research. Mm -hmm. One of the things, though, that I say about um, XFI uh, is, is the following. And here, let me say, I think the real distinction is not so much um, XFI versus empirical psychology. It's rather whether you're doing something like survey research or whether you're doing um, investigations of some kind that try to get at the causation of uh, people's causal judgments. In other words, what are the underlying processes that generate the judgments? Mm -hmm. Surveys um, of the sort conducted by uh, 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 experimental philosophers can be good, of course, at uh, uncovering how, how people do in fact judge, right. you know, whether they um, uh, agree or not that it's uh, Susie's rock and not Billy's rock that caused the bottle to shatter. On the other hand, uh, surveys, uh, just by the way in which they're designed, are not going to tell you much of anything about the underlying causation, mm -hmm. uh, under, or the processes that underlie uh, the generation of those judgments. You could just ask people, uh, okay, here's your judgment. How did you re reach the judgment? But I think we have lots of evidence that that's just not uh, a very reliable way of figuring out what it is that's uh, uh, causing their judgments. People don't have that kind of uh, introspective access to 
uh, whatever it is that underlies their judgments. And there, um, for that reason, if you want um, a story about the processes that underlie people's judgments or the computations that are involved when uh, people look at some data and then they reach a conclusion about causal relationships, if you want a story about that, um, you really need to do either experiments, uh, that is experiments in the literal sense in which you're uh, manipulating variables and seeing what the consequences are, or if you're just looking at observational data, what you have to do is to do uh, causal modeling with that data where, where you actually um, try to go into the data and, and uncover using various kinds of causal modeling techniques what the uh, underlying causal processes are at work in generating the data. I will say that there are at least some people uh, who are philosophers and pr probably self-identify as experimental philosophers who have done uh, what I've just described. So jo Josh Nob uh, mm -hmm. has done a bunch of work on um, causal judgment. And that work uh, does um, uh, involve uh, the use of experimental manipulations and causal modeling. And it um, also um, uh, makes use of uh, uh, computational models uh, that uh, purport to uh, uh, describe the kinds of factors uh, that influence people's judgments. So that kind of work is um, not, it, it isn't mere survey work. It's, uh, I shouldn't say mere survey work. It, is, it, it isn't survey work. It's the kind of work that, that tries to uncover the, um, uh, the underlying uh, uh, causation of, uh, of, our, uh, of, of the causal judgments that we make. So that's the way I see those three, the three things that you described uh, related to one another. Right. So how do we, um, you know, judge whether we're getting something right, you know, getting it, yeah. You know, that was a big issue, I think, in the book. Um, yeah. So I have several things uh, to say about that. Um, <laughs> the first of which may strike you as, as question begging. Uh, uh, but perhaps not entirely. And then, then there's some other things I can say. So, so I, I think one of the things that you, you, you need to do is to specify what the goal is that you're uh, uh, trying to achieve, because I think it's only relative to that that it makes sense to talk about uh, you know, whether uh, someone has gotten things right or not. So if you think that um, uh, the, what you're aiming at, at least in part, or maybe largely uh, in uh, causal reasoning and trying to make correct causal judgments is finding relationships that support manipulation and control, uh, then um, getting it right uh, has a pretty straightforward interpretation. Uh, it just has to do with whether the relationships that you find uh, are in fact of that character. So uh, in, in, in the case of causal reasoning, um, uh, suppose I'm given a bunch of uh, experimental, uh, a, a bunch of purely observational data. In other words, there's no experiment involved, uh, no manipulation involved at all. And I describe some sort of um, reasoning technique or procedure that takes that observational data and does something with it and uh, reaches a causal conclusion, then uh, the question of whether the causal conclusion is right or not is simply the question of whether I have in fact found relationships uh, uh, that support manipulation and control. And that, you know, that's something that can be um, often determined empirically. I can mm -hmm. get the causal relationship out of the observational data, and then sometimes I can do an experiment to um, uh, which I actually manipulate things and see whether the, the claimed uh, relationship I found from the causal data is um, uh, one that is supported by the experimental manipulation. Mm -hmm. so, so that's that's part of the story. And you, I anticipate the response that, uh, oh, that this, in some way that's question begging because you're assuming uh, uh, an interventionist account of causation. That's your, your standard for whether or not you've gotten it right or not. Um, okay, that's, uh, I, I see the the why one might think there's a kind of circularity there, but on the on the other hand, um, whether some 
pattern of reasoning or inference procedure is giving you that kind of information about whether the relationships you're coming up with support manipulation and control, um, that's going to be an empirical question. That's something that we can uh, uh, ascertain uh, 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 independently. We don't just have to uh, rely on something like intuition or it seems reasonable to me. Um, the other thing I would say in connection with this is that in the case of um, a lot of the experiments uh, that I describe, we have pretty general agreement about what the relation, the causal relationships are. Uh, and we have agreement in the sense that pretty much any sensible theory of causation would agree about what these, uh, what the causal relationships are. So uh, Alison Gopnik, for example, does uh, experiments in which um, there's a, a made up device called a Blicket detector and putting certain blocks on, on the um, uh, detector, you can make uh, the detector light up. Uh, other blocks you put on the detector won't make it light up. Um, when uh, uh, a, and this is done to uh, the, 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 this experimental, these experimental devices are used to investigate um, uh, uh, causal reasoning, causal learning uh, uh, among small children. Um, uh, when this is done, um, it's really pretty straightforward, uh, except with a complication I'll come to in a minute. It's really pretty straightforward what the interpret in causal interpretation is supposed to be. If you you know you put the block on the on, on the blicket detector and the blicket detector lights up, um, then it's the putting the block on the blicket detector that causes it to light up. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's not like it's um, you know uh, uh, you, you, when, when you make, when you make that kind of judgment and, and when you when you try to decide whether the kid has gotten it right. Um, the kid has selected the correct block, say, from uh, uh, several different blocks to make the blicket detector light up. It's not as though uh, you're, you know, making some sort of arbitrary assumption about uh, which relations are the causal. It's just kind of built into the uh, 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 the experiment that you you uh, uh, you know that. And you know, let me remark in this connection that if you talk about causal learning at all, um, learning uh, has to require some sort of standard of correctness. Mm -hmm. So causal learning experiments are going to be about that. Now, one thing I should say about this, and the people who are who may be familiar with uh, these experiments are probably sitting there thinking this. Uh, in fact, in the um, in the experiments. Um, it, it actually isn't true that putting the, the block on the uh, blicket detector causes it to light up. In, in fact, there's a, a confederate who controls the blicket and uh, uh, makes it light up whenever the appropriate block is uh, placed, placed on it. But the point is that the, the experiment itself is, is sort of premised on the idea that the, the natural interpretation of what is going on is that the presence of this block on the detector will make it light up and the presence of that presence of that block on the detector uh, will not make it light up. Mm -hmm. um, so I think sometimes we, we pretty much, the, 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 the answer to the question of getting it right sometimes is, well, uh, pretty much any reasonable theory of causation is going to agree uh, about what the correct uh, causal judgment is and the issue is just more whether some um, reasoning procedure or, or learning procedure uh, is going to get you to the correct result. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so here, here's another example uh, to illustrate this, um, which is discussed at, in greater length on a paper that I wrote that's going to be forthcoming in the online journal Theoria. Um, this is a paper with the title uh, Flagpoles, anyone? And it's about issues having to do with um, the direction of causation uh -huh, and teachers right. learning uh, 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 the direction of causation. So there are um, procedures now in the machine learning literature um, that address that very problem. And that, for example, when you're given um, two variables, X and Y, that are correlated and 
you know perhaps that there's no common cause, but you don't want to know whether the causal direction goes from X to Y or from Y to X, these procedures will, uh, under some circumstances, um, uh, will give you from statistical information about the way in which the variables are co-varying, uh, it, it can give you information about whether the direction goes one way or direction goes uh, the other. Now, the procedures themselves can actually be tested or calibrated empirically. You can take cases in which you think you know very well what the causal direction is. You can give that information to the, uh, uh, the machine learning uh, uh, algorithms, and then you can see whether they come up with uh, what you think is the right answer. Mm. And that's a test also of uh, getting it right. So for example, one of the data sets on which they ran uh, these uh, algorithms was um, uh, information about uh, rainfall and how that relates to information about altitude. So we have the uh, in very strong thought that uh, it's altitude that causes rainfall level rather than uh, the other way around. And indeed, the, um, uh, these learning procedures uh, uh, reproduce that judgment, not perfectly, but you know, with a kind of a reasonable degree of probability. So you can, um, so there are, I think, ways of testing whether you've gotten uh, success or not. And, 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 I, and, and I think that's an important thing to do. One, one of the themes of the book, I, I should perhaps say, is that in investigating uh, causal cognition, and I think this isn't just true of uh, causal cognition, but all sorts of other forms of reasoning or learning uh, that are uh, of interest in, in psychology, um, it, it's very important to um, pay attention to uh, the issue of uh, which are the strategies uh, that make for success and which aren't. Uh, because the um, procedures and, or reasoning procedures, learning procedures, whatever, um, uh, that are in place, um, they're there because they're aiming at success under mm. some notion of success. They're there because uh, uh, they're going to help us in one way or another to successfully get around in the world. So uh, to use a, an example that I, that I discussed briefly in the book, and it's actually due to originally Dallas and Gopnik, um, someone who proposes to investigate the human visual system and just um, uh, produces um, uh, j just uh, uh, theorizes about algorithms that um, operate on human on a, a visual uh, on on input to the visual system, and so, and then traces them to uh, out, traces these to uh, outputs in terms of visual judgments, and just leaves it at that. Um, that's not going to be a very illuminating story about the working of the visual system. One of the important features of the visual system is that it's uh, often really pretty successful in giving us uh, information about uh, uh, what is out there in uh, uh, the visually accessible parts of the world uh, before us. And so right. you, in understanding the visual system, you want some sort of explanation of how it's able to do that successfully. And I think a similar sort of thing is true in uh, uh, trying to understand uh, uh, causal cognition. Yeah. It's funny because as you're talking, I was thinking, you know, this is where the kind of a more diehard metaphysician or anti-realist at least would jump in and sort of say, how do we know that we don't in fact live in a world of, of blicket detectors? <laughs> um, I mean, they're confounded in the way that I just Yeah, yes, yeah. systematically. And that's, of course, where the exactly where the success argument kind of you know, tries to plug that hole. Uh, I'm not sure that, you know, a diehard anti-realist would, would buy it, but I'm saying that's, that, that's, I think, what, what makes you a realist. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I um, also would say this has to do with the, this connects to the infrastructure idea that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. So, you, yeah, you could imagine a world in which there's an evil demon that, uh, you know, whenever it looks as though X is causing Y, uh, yeah. no matter how compelling the evidence, the demon is there um, uh, and uh, somehow, you know, introducing confounders in such a way that X really doesn't cause Y, uh, 
you know, it's always really due to something else, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's a, it's a, just a presupposition of, um, of uh, scientific inquiry or even common sense causal inquiry that we don't live in a world in which uh, that, that kind of uh, systematic misleading uh, yeah. is, 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 is going on. We assume that the underlying infrastructure isn't like that. And uh, right. that, um, you know, and then we kind of, you know, make use of that assumption in our, uh, in our causal reasoning. Right, right. Um, well, uh, you know, I wanted to, you know, you have some very interesting chapters about um, the concept of invariance and, and you know, our, the relationship between causal reasoning and seeking invariance. Um, and you also have a very interesting discussion about proportionality, um, how we determine, you know, basically how to choose the the narrowness or generality of the variables that we're relationship that we're relating between our, you know, the causes and the effects. Um, uh, unfortunately, I think we're we're about out of time, so um, I'm going to have to, uh, you know, ask our our sort of final question and and leave to readers to kind of explore the book themselves, which they should do anyway. Um, so I usually like to end with a question about what is on the horizon for you now. You've mentioned a couple of, of papers you're working on uh, that seem to be following up on this book. So what's, uh, what's on your research horizon at the moment? Ah, well, um, so the infrastructure paper, the joint paper that I was talking about is one of, one of the things that uh, I want to finish up. It's been uh, somewhat, dis getting it done has been uh, uh, somewhat disrupted because uh, of uh, various things, including a, uh, a move on my part and uh, uh, teaching that I'm doing this term and so forth. But that's one of the things um, that I want to do. Um, there are uh, a bunch of experiments um, that I think are uh, might be done, some of which are, discuss, uh, are suggested in the book uh, that I'd like to uh, uh, explore. One of the themes of the book that I really didn't get a chance to uh, talk much about is, is in, in, in this uh, conversation is the extent to which um, uh, normative theorizing about uh, causation can be actually very useful to uh, psychologists in suggesting uh, possible experiments that might be done. Mm -hmm. um, there's a long history of uh, this already happening, and I think there are you know lots and lots of um, uh, uh, experiments that uh, uh, that might still be done. Um, one issue, another issue, which I sort of short change in the book, and I understand that uh, probably uh, at least some people are going to be disappointed about this, but it was a long book already, and um, I wasn't exactly sure how to bring this material into the uh, discussion, is the whole issue of actual causation, as it's called. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, a lot of the, the, the experimental results uh, from psychology that I discussed in the book are mainly results about what you might think of as generic or type level causal relationships. That is, smoking causes lung cancer as opposed to Jack Jones's uh, smoking caused that particular person, Jack Jones, to get lung cancer. I think we don't have very good theories about how actual causal judgment works. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is something that I would like to uh, explore in more detail. And I do have a um, forthcoming paper uh, entitled something like uh, Mysteries of Actual Causation or Actual Causation, It's Complicated or something like that, uh, <laughs> in, in which um, one of the proposals that I make is it may in fact be that um, actual causal judgments are a kind of heterogeneous class. And so it may be that there's no single systematic theory that will cover all of them. Mm. Uh, this would explain why 
so far at least, we haven't been very successful in uh, finding such theories. Uh, there are, uh, of course, lots of proposals in the, in the philosophical literature about how to understand actual causation. And more recently, it's become a, a, a topic in um, uh, computer science or AI. Uh, the computer scientist, uh, Joe Halperin, has a book-length discussion of, uh, of actual causation. Um, and I think it's fair to say, and so he has a system, Alperin, for example, has a systematic theory about this framed in language of structural equations and so forth. I think it's fair to say that though that the um, uh, theory, um, you know, it doesn't cover all, all, all of the cases in a, in, a, in a very satisfactory way. So this is some, another thing that I'd like to, uh, uh, I'd like to think more about. Great, great. Um, and one thing I should, you know, one of the more interesting little bits of the book was your discussion of, of omissions, you know, which have always been a metaphysical mystery of how something that didn't happen can be a cause, right? Um, but I, I'll just leave that as a teaser for, for listeners. <laughs> but I, I, I definitely enjoyed that, that part. Um, but anyway, um, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with, with me with new books and philosophy. And um, it's a very interesting book. It raises a lot of interesting issues. And I, I think, um, you know, I'm glad that, that it's, it's there to provoke people. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. And, and in fact, if the book just seems interesting to people and it raises interesting issues, uh, I would be very, very satisfied uh, just, just, just with that. Uh, if you just come away thinking, well, there are issues discussed in this book. Woodward may be completely wrong about them, but um, at least there's something uh, worthwhile exploring there. Uh, that would uh, that would satisfy me. Great. Okay. Well, thanks, and uh, good luck with your with your work and with your experiments. Thank you. You've been listening to my interview with Jim Woodward. We've been talking about his new book, Causation with a Human Face, Normative Theory and Descriptive Psychology, which is just out with Oxford University Press as part of their studies in philosophy of science. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>